0: All right, and welcome to another episode of the Lion's Guide Podcast, where we take on topics in performance and personal growth by exploring the success stories of our guests and the lessons they've learned. I interview other subject matter experts on topics of performance and growth, and I also review books and other resources to help us all establish clarity, build courage, and lead the way. I'm your host, Dale Walls. I'm founder of Lion's Guide, and on this episode, I've got Mr. Tom Harden, who, after being implicated in a sting, a little-known financial analyst named Tom Harden... Known by his undercover moniker, Tipper X, was tasked with wearing a covert body wire to help the FBI bring down some of its biggest targets in the industry, leading to the largest Wall Street house cleaning campaign of a generation. Tom was later invited by the FBI to speak to their rookie agents in 2016. It is now a global keynote speaker, corporate trainer, board advisor on behavioral ethics, decision making and organizational misconduct, and also cultural risk. And through rigorous self-examination, Tom took responsibility for his actions as a young professional and used the experience to transform his life and is now on an ongoing journey into human behavior and why we sometimes make the wrong decisions. So on this episode, Tom and I explore his story, you know, which to me is a story in recognizing when you know, we have made errors and, and, and about having the courage to pivot and from those errors and persevere through the consequences while on our way to making the right choices. So it's a really great story. I I enjoyed this conversation and I'm excited to share it to you. So if you like the sound of that, you know, before we get started, hit that subscribe button so you don't miss any of our other great guests and content. If you've been listening and you haven't, please give us a review on the podcast. So we can help popularize it and get some more uh, folks listening to it. I appreciate that. Um, And then, you know, as always, this podcast is sponsored by Lions Guide. And if you've been tuning in and getting value from the show, then do yourself a favor and go to lionsguide.com and join our member community called The Pride. Uh, For no cost to you, it's free. You get access to all kinds of free exclusive content to include yet to be released episodes of the podcast. I've got reading lists out there. I've been doing a slew of uh, live virtual training events uh, with some guest lecturers. Uh, we've got a private online group to engage with other growth-minded members, and, and a whole lot more. So, uh, joining the Pride is free, and I'm developing it all to help you kind of break out of your rut and/or break through to the next best version of yourself by establishing clarity, building your courage, and being the true leader of your life. So, check it out now. Go to allianceguide.com and join today. Happy to have you. And with that, let's start the show. <music> Guys, and on today's podcast, we have Mr. Tom Harden, who is known as Tipper X. He's a global keynote speaker. He's now a corporate trainer, uh, you know, a board advisor on behavioral ethics, decision making, organizational misconduct, and culture risk. And is also quite the endurance athlete, which which I recently recently learned, which I thought was awesome. Having ran fourteen marathons, seven ultra marathons. A eight year streak of running his age and miles on his birthday. It's Freaking, I was kind of blown away by that one. So we're we're gonna pick on that a little bit. But Tom, hey, welcome to the show. Thanks for hopping on, man. Uh, tell us a little bit about who you are and, and what you do.
1: Thanks, Dale. Uh, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me on. Uh, so I'm I'm Tom Harden. Um, I grew up in the suburbs of Atlanta, Georgia. So I'm I'm 44 years old. Um, had a great sort of childhood in the 80s and 90s in the Georgia, uh, the Atlanta suburbs. Father worked there for the Coca Cola Company. Uh, his whole career, uh, mother stayed at home with myself and my my two brothers. Uh, first of my family to attend a really prestigious college, um, was an overachiever in a in a great you know public high school. There, uh, went to University of Pennsylvania, and then you know through my career, which we're going to talk about, of course, I'm now a uh, speaker on ethics, decision making, uh, compliance training, that type of thing, uh, primarily for financial services, but also many other industries as to why. Good people do bad things, so I didn't do, go to college uh, for this, what I'm doing today. I got here um, in, a, in a different kind of way, which we'll talk about, but that's what I'm doing today, uh, kind of sharing my story, which we'll get into.
0: Yeah. No, well, it's awesome, um, and, and that's another interesting thing I didn't know about you. So, you were the first in your family to go to college? Uh, no, to attend um,
1: college outside of the South, so… Uh, oh, outside the South, gotcha. Yeah, yeah, but I was also the oldest of three brothers, so chronologically, sure. that would be… Um, the situation, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, so you went to college for? Uh, so, I went for. I was uh, majored in finance. Uh, so, at the Wharton, undergraduate school of business. Um, back when I was in high school in the nineties, uh, you applied to only three schools. So, you applied to your reach, which was, which was this Ivy League school, your kind of uh, middle school, and then your safety school. And now, you know, with the common application, people apply to dozens of colleges. But back in the day, I'm dating <laughs> myself, we applied to three schools. <laughs> so that was, that was. Uh, I applied to this Ivy League school. I got deferred. I got waitlisted, and then they finally let me in. Somehow, I think there was a quota for people from Georgia, so that's, that's how I got in.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and so that was your target school. That yeah, was that your, was my reach. reach. School. That was yeah. my reach. Yeah, right on. So also, now, now that was that. Just kind of curious, coming, like, coming from the south. So, so what did your parents go to college as well? And or were
1: yeah, they- yeah, they attended uh, Clemson University in South Carolina. Um, okay, and so, but as far as getting outside the south and going somewhere new, sort of a uh, a little bit of like a foreign country. I, I had spent most of my life again in, in the south, and sort of going to college uh, in Philadelphia, um, meeting people from all over the world. I think on my hall, there was uh, at least eleven different countries represented among the sixty people on the dormitory there. So that was really eye opening for me, coming out of my bubble um, of sort of hom- homogenous people, coming out to a world where I was getting hit with different viewpoints, challenging my thinking on everything, and so. You know, you stay up till 2 a.m. debating with people on the on the hallway, all kinds of issues in the world. So for me, at 18 years old, that was a pretty awesome experience to be thrown into that kind of thrown into the wolves, where I didn't have, you know, the, the prep school background that many people had. There, I just sort of came in, uh, the guy from Georgia, uh, and and learned a lot uh, from different people. You know, and got a, got a great exposure to different professors and ways of thinking, and I really figured out that I wanted to be in finance. So I, I went to college thinking I would be a tax attorney because my friends um, some of my friends' parents did that, and I thought that would be great interesting work, but I figured out to me that wasn't going to be interesting it would be finance um just the intellectual stimulation of the stock market, and like if this happens in Europe, this is going to impact the u s this will impact Asia just going through that, learning more about that when I was at Penn uh, really set me in the direction
0: of wanting to go into financial services and trading and that type of thing the stock market yeah, that's awesome it, it now was there anything that you recall right so coming out of your bubble that any insights you gained by that experience of getting out? And this is something, I, and I'm interested in this because for me, similarly, I left my hometown, I jokingly called Mayberry on a podcast, like, <laughs> and, and joined the Marine Corps, which similarly, you get exposed to all these new personalities, people, places. Um, for you, what, do you recall anything that kind of like stuck out that you that enlightened you or insights that you gained by this exposure coming out of your budget? or, or uh, bubble bubble. Yeah. So I think what was surprising
1: is I saw um, people from all these countries, but then there was like so much we had in common. It's just 18 year olds, depending not, you know, you could be from any other country, but there was so much we had in common interest, that type of thing. So I was a little bit apprehensive going in, you know, they're going to think I'm some hick from, uh, from Georgia, but really we had, we had so much in common when we'd have discussions or when we had common interest in movies and, and TV shows. And we'd all watch the Simpsons. I remember that, you know, at that time and really, everybody's laughing. If you're from Bangladesh or from Georgia, like, you know, everybody uh, had a lot of the same interests. So that was the opening for me that we have some more uh, commonalities um, than we know we do. And I think that's even important today for people to realize that sometimes we can get too caught up in whatever is happening in the news or political cycles that we actually have a lot more in common than we think.
0: Yeah, man, I've come of the belief, I tell people today, that, you know, even all this divisiveness that we're like, (laughs) <laughs> that we're up against if you're out on the streets meeting people you'll find i feel like 80 plus percent of people like are all looking for the same thing life liberty and the pursuit of happiness i think like it's this these far 10 percent have been amplified with technology yep. to sound like it's a whole lot more divisiveness than what it really is right. and we can get caught up in that and think like there's a 50 50 like <laughs> <you know. laughs> divisive work on it's not you know if you get out there not and meet good. your neighbors black white religious differences whatever like we're all the 80 percent of us are all looking for the same thing and all this noise like you know the common the majority isn't really all caught up into it you know it's just me yeah
1: that's right and i, I think at 18 19 realizing that has helped me navigate um you know a lot of like the rest of my life to age 44 here where we do all have a lot in common more than we uh more than the the, the media tells us we do. So
0: yeah. yeah, and you can learn a lot, you know. You learn yeah. out and get out there and like you know, just ask, like, if you don't walk around that ego that you know it all and where you come from is, is the gospel and the way we did things in the South, you know, whatever is better than you, you you know, what do you call it? Yanks, you know, whatever. (laughs) Right. Exactly. (laughs) Um, But you can open your mind up and kind of like learn, you know, that's awesome. I think that's, that's great. Um, So, so how did you do in school and and what happened from there?
1: Yeah. So I got my first uh, C ever, uh, freshman year at college. (laughs) So, um, you know, I remember um, my dad was there for parents weekend and it was Econ 101, which is going to be my major. And the big thing in college is you basically only get two grades. You get the midterm and the final um, and that's it. You might get some class participation. I got a C and I was talking to my dad. He's like, well, you know, at least you got into the school. So just graduate. <laughs> you know, So it's, it's okay. And, you know, you're going to improve from there. So I improved from there. Um, did pretty well when I graduated. I think uh, it was like the magna cum laude or something around there. Not, not the highest, but did did well. Um, wanted to get into finance. So I, my first job was um, at an investment bank in Los Angeles. So uh, in investment banking, when you're 22 years old, it's those 100-hour weeks where uh, the managing director will leave at 5 p.m., drop up some work for you for the client that they want You know, at 9 a.m. in the morning so you're not going home. So, mm. so that was my first experience. But to relate it to maybe something like uh, finance boot camp, where if you're 22, you're not married, you have no kids, Why not for two years? Just slave away and learn as much as you can. So that's what I was uh, intentioning to do uh, when I graduated to really sign up for
0: that, do those 100-hour weeks, but hopefully learn a ton. Yeah, that's awesome. So you moved out there. So now, now had you done much traveling like before going to college? I I had not.
1: So it was sort of Georgia to Philadelphia um, and then across the country to Los Angeles. So that was the most traveling I'd ever done in my life um, at that point, 22 years old.
0: Um, going out there working in an investment bank um, and putting in those those hours. Yeah, that's that's awesome. And it's a sort of similar experience that now you're out there meeting, kind of meeting and living that lifestyle, meeting different people and new firm and all that as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I only lasted um, a few months. So after my fourth all nighter, I remember I couldn't even think straight. And I got a call from a a friend that worked at a, a an entity which is called a hedge fund. Um, in Greenwich, Connecticut. So I don't want to get too inside baseball. I know most people aren't probably in finance, but um, a hedge fund is really a way for wealthy individuals to pull their money together. And the manager of this hedge fund tries to beat the average market return. And for that, so whether, whether the stock market goes up or down, um, the hedge fund's always supposed to be up. And for that, they charge a really nice performance fee. So I got recruited by this hedge fund in Greenwich only a few months after my 100-hour uh, weeks in investment banking. So, I actually left January LA when it was really nice flying into eight feet of snow uh, near Greenwich, Connecticut. So, that was uh, my my second sort of job, which happened only a few months
0: after uh, the first. So. Yeah. Bouncing all around. Well, that's good. And I think you're right. I think you call yeah. out. And I think a lot of people, a lot of young people should hear that. Like, go explore, man. Like, don't go go find what suits you and and travel around like get out of. i tell people get out of here man go go see the world and i came back eventually came back knowing what i know now but um it's uh get away go 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 get out of your hometown go go explore the world a little bit so yeah you only have that one
1: time in your life really with with no dependents and no you know spouse usually that that you know
0: go see the world, you know, <laughs> yeah, take risks, absolutely. take risks. Too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now's the time because yeah. you don't have yeah. as much to lose, right? You know, exactly. um, when you've got that. And so, uh, so what, so, so walk me through it. How, how things go from there and, uh, how'd you end up here today?
1: Yeah. So that's a, it's a longer story, but, uh, so I started working at this hedge fund and in my industry, um, I immediately started noticing as I attend investment conferences And um, meet with other investment analysts or get to know people at other firms that companies uh, were trading stocks on inside information. And there's a legal definition for this. But just to make it really clear, um, if you have information that's not public, that can move a stock price um, and you place a trade on that, like you buy shares or you sell stock in the company before that's public, that's illegal. So, for example... Um, if I went, walked down to my town to Starbucks and talked to the manager and said, how are your sales going this year? And he told me that's not illegal because that doesn't move the stock price. But if I fly to Seattle, were to play golf with the CFO of Starbucks and say, hey, how are sales this quarter? And he told me and I placed a stock trade, that's illegal because that's information that will move the stock price. So this was going on uh, in the marketplace at that time. It didn't seem like it was being prosecuted Um, by the FBI or by the SEC, who's the regulator of financial markets, so this was going on. Um, I never felt like I had to cross that line in the industry to be successful in my career, even though I was in a very competitive, cutthroat career, uh, which I I really love because I love just being graded on, did you make money for the firm or not? There was no politics about, are you a good employee, this or that, hey, this is the ultimate meritocracy really intellectually stimulating, highly competitive, somewhat short-term focused, and really, are you going to make money for me Not or not, Tom? Because if not, I'm going to throw you out and hire the next you know, kid at the college to see if he can do it. So there are some negatives to that, which I'll get into, of course, but that's kind of setting the stage uh, for my future decision-making here at that time.
0: Yeah. And that's like one of the things with like good employee engagement, which is like, knowing who you serve, how you serve them, and being in complete control of a tangible deliverable, right? Like, you know, like for example, right. like you're in a job that you knew what success looked like, so you could show up and go chase success all day. But, um, you know, it's one of those things in leadership that you really, your people really need to know, um, you know, what a good job looks like, and that has to be 100% in their control. Um, and I, I chime on that because like you, you love the work, probably for those reasons, like, you knew what success looked like, you knew what you had to do to go make success happen and boom. And, and some people like struggle with that, you know, so that's a kind of a leadership thing for folks like, you know, to kind of make sure people know that what a good job looks like and how they control it so that they can. So that's, that's awesome. So, so what, what was going So, and I guess like, so what you were hearing on the street in circles, like about these different activities. So it was just kind of nonchalant to you, par for the course, the way things work.
1: Yeah. So there was a, I I won't name him just, I don't want to be uh, in trouble for libel, but there was a well-known hedge fund billionaire who would be at these conferences who would basically stick his chest chest out and brag, you know, this CEO or CFO gives me information because he's an investor in my hedge fund. So if I uh, make money in my hedge fund, I'm going to make money for him. So he's going to give me more information about his stock and his company. So that was going on. Uh, This individual was blatantly talking about it at these conferences. So It doesn't excuse my future behavior but when i see a billionaire out here doing this i'm thinking oh my god this is this is normal behavior this is illegal but this is going on so that's happening at the time other hedge funds are hiring uh stock analysts from tech companies in silicon valley to work for them so they can call back to their friends at an intel or a google or a yahoo at that time and say hey you know give me some inside information they would get that place trade. So this was going on. I see it's going on. I also know, I think that looking back, that I knew I wasn't part of that in-group. And as a young professional in my 20s, I had major insecurities about not being part of that group that was doing that. So this is all setting the stage. Um, A few years later, I I joined a new hedge fund. Um, We were investing. We were trading. We were up about 20% 20% of one year, which was great, but we lost money in two of the first three months. My boss came into my office, closed the door one day and said, Tom, I know we're investing longer term, but we have to start looking for shorter term opportunities to make money every month. Saying Without saying that inside information stuff, that's okay to start doing now. And mm-hmm. when a goal goes from longer term to very short term, the opportunity for misconduct to happen certainly increases. And I'd also say any ambiguity in a message from a senior leader to the junior person to do what it takes to meet shorter term goals. And by the way, the senior person's going to be an ostrich. Like, don't tell me how you're doing it. That can set the stage too for misconduct. So this is starting to slowly happen over time. Uh, and I'll get to the actual trade and that type of thing. But just to set the stage for the ambiguity in that message and the very short termism going from longer term to short term.
0: Yeah. Well, what he did was he set a commander's intent, right? So, you know, there's in leadership, there's commander's intent, which, you know, is a good thing when it says, hey, our mission is to take that hill. I don't care how we do it. We got to take that hill. Mm-hmm. So he was kindly doing the same thing, but with a negative intent and uh, and then was willfully blind to it, to a way, right? The, the, the ambiguity, yeah. ambigu- ambiguity was a, a shield, if you will. Yeah, willful blindness
1: is a big thing in my training today. So, that happens. A few months later, I got a call from another investor in the industry, saying that uh, I had made a lot of money for her over the last few years on some great stock calls. So every year, I would just say, "This is my this is my favorite stock idea of the year," whether it was a Google or an Intel or Yahoo, that type of thing. And so I had made her some money, and she said, "Tom, I'm going to tell you something, but you cannot tell anybody." And so my red flag alert should have gone off like, okay, what's about to happen? But she said that a company, um, she got a tip that a certain stock was going to be acquired by a private equity firm in a few weeks in the stock market. She had the date, she had the price, and she had the name of the firm. So right there, she knew that this stock was going to go up 30% in a few weeks. That's inside information. I did not make any trades at that point. Like I'm sort of letting this, marinate like oh my god it just fell on my lap like i just got the answers to the test in my lap now what am i going to do i knew enough at that point i should not do anything but later that day i was talking to a friend outside my firm who worked at another firm we were talking kind of chit-chatting he was having a rough month in the market um, and this is a guy i talked to once or twice a month not a close friend but he said tom are you hearing anything out there like i'm struggling are you hearing anything out there i could put a trade on And Dale, kind of as a throwaway comment, I said, I got this weird call from this woman this morning saying this company is going to be bought in a few weeks. Just pausing right there, not to get too inside baseball, but now I've committed insider trading just by sharing this information with him. I could now be charged for insider trading just for sharing it. And I haven't even traded yet. I have no idea what he's going to do with it or who he's going to share it with. He shares it with everybody in this firm. They all buy this stock. He calls me back a few days later and said, Tom, we're all in. Did you buy some? And as the junior person, so my, my two-person firm as the boss saying, do what it takes to meet the shorter-term numbers, I could buy a stock in our portfolio and not have to tell my boss about it as long as it was less than 1% of the, the capital that we managed for clients. And Dale, I calculated and bought a 0.9% position in the portfolio in this stock, so I could pause there, but I could tell you why I did that later. But that's sort of the setup uh, for my first illicit uh, action.
0: So did you, um, had you bought? So when your guy, so you told, you did what she told you not to do. Right. And had you bought at that point or did you buy kind of like a FOMO? Like, oh, these, I mentioned it, to this guy, now they're all in. And did you buy at that yeah. point or had you already bought?
1: Uh, I bought at that point. It was totally FOMO. You're right. All these guys are in. She's telling me this is going to happen. The boss is saying, look for shorter term ideas. I felt like this would totally go undetected if I just bought a small amount of stock because this other hedge fund billionaire was making millions of dollars doing this. I bought the stock and Dale, I told myself um, to use an analogy like those other firms were going way over the speed limit. What if I just bought a small position? What if I just went a little bit over? I said, it seems like everybody's doing it. I said, who am I hurting? This is a very common excuse for actually a lot of white collar crime. Like it's sometimes hard to see who's the victim. Is it the stock market? Like I'm just buying it before everybody else. Um, I could still think of myself as a good person and buy this stock. Like I knew I was breaking the law. I don't want to say that there was any um, ambiguity here. Like I knew I was breaking the law, but I felt, well, I'm still a good guy because I'm not buying a lot of stock. And there's this idea of fudge factor where we all want to think of ourselves as good people. We want to cheat up to the point we can do that. Now, rarely would it ever escalate to committing a crime, but that was my line of thinking at the time. I told myself I'd do it just this once and not do it again. I'll do it just just one time and, and I'll never do this again. Just one time, a little FOMO. And I also told myself that I'm just taking a flyer. So the term taking a flyer in our industry is when you buy a small amount of stock. Again, you have FOMO that something's going to happen that other people are involved in. So I said, you know what? I'm just taking a flyer. So by using a euphemism to describe my behavior, I'm creating some psychological distance between myself and that trade. I didn't say, hey, I'm insider trading. I said, I'll just take a flyer too. So that's everything in my head
0: going on at that time. You're justifying it. Now, I guess as far as I'm kind of curious, what if these guys had called you and go, hey, man, we just picked up the stock just FYI, like and you jumped on it, like, I guess I'm kind of curious, like if it went the other way and you had a buddy over mm-hmm. there said, Hey, we're all in, but he didn't say why he goes, Hey, mm-hmm. you know, we're jumping on X, Y, Z, if you want to look at it or whatever, would that have been innocent enough? Or would you have kind of been a, um, by- innocent bystander at that point and still got called up?
1: Yeah. That's an important question. Cause we hear rumors all the time and that, that would not be illegal if somebody says we're all in and then he's not, not telling me why they're buying it, just saying, hey, you should take a look, we're all in. Um, as long as I don't know uh, the source of the information and all that, I mean, that happens all the time. Mm-hmm. But the fact that she told me, you know, the date, the price and the private equity firm, uh, that's material, it's non-public. And so that that's illegal. But to your to your point, if they had just called me and said, take a look and I bought a small amount, that's not um,
0: insider trading, right? And so in your case, going the other way, you gave them all the information. It wasn't just a, Hey, yeah, I'm looking at this. It was like, right. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. So I bought the stock, um, and a few days went
1: by and I was talking to two other people that I knew, two friends who I thought very highly of, they were both starting their own hedge funds around this time. I thought of these two guys, it's kind of like a sounding board, like highly ethical, Investors, I thought if I called them and said, "Hey, this is happening in a few weeks," to kind of test them out, I thought they'd say, "What the heck are you doing, Tom? This is illegal." Instead, they both heard me out. One of them snickered and said, "I can't believe you even know something like this, Tom. It sounds like that movie Wall Street from back in the '80s, like Blue Horseshoe." Yeah. And he said, "What the heck? I'll take a flyer too." So Dale, like by bringing these guys into my conduct, um, it's called self-serving altruism so very altruistic of me i think highly of these two guys i now have them also buying the stock and i start to become a little desensitized to what i'm doing like i'm sort of in my bubble now like okay this is okay this is going to happen and then a few more days went by the stock was halted for trading one morning so that means news is coming word for word exactly what she said i had been telling myself maybe this is just a rumor it was exactly what she told me the price the date everything so it's not a rumor i'd love to tell you here that i told my boss about it and called the fbi to report myself but that's that's not true and once you do it once and most importantly my boss never questioned my success like a well timed trade it's up 30% never asked a question it became easy to do this three more times
0: and that, and, and that's what you did you now where were you getting the information for the follow-ups the same person or did you kind of like open up
1: the same woman, the same woman. Mm -hmm. It was three more times, uh, these tips, these trades, these small, uh, 0.9% positions. Um, so it happened four times over the course
0: of probably eight months. And was it more the same? Did you kind of start a little of your own like insiders club at that point? Like did the same sequence of events happen, with each time, call those guys, call your buddies, it, it, or did, were you more private?
1: No, it was the same sequence of events. She would call me, don't tell anybody. I'd call them, <laughs> do this. And I. the first time it happened, so the first stock when I saw it, and I kind of freaked out a little bit thinking like, oh my God, this is real. I hate to say that I got a little bit of an adrenaline rush. Like I should have freaked out and thought I'm never talking to her again. Like this is clearly illegal. But I got a little bit of an adrenaline rush. Like now I'm in that inside group that I wasn't a part of as a young person. And like now I'm on the end group. And so that next conference I went to, when I saw those guys um, who, not the guys I was calling, but the guys who I knew were really into this making millions, I told them I knew about that deal. And they're a few years older than me. And they said, Tom, you don't know about this stuff. This is our world. Tom, you actually look, you know, you do legitimate work. I said, no, no, no. I knew about that deal. And I know about three more that are coming up one of the guys put his arm around me and said, you know, hey, you know, not exactly this, but hey, sort of young Padawan, you're not part of our group. So again, that insecurity as a young professional not being part of the in-group, now I'm part of the group. That adrenaline, that rush um, definitely contributed to me doing it, I think, three more times in the same way that sort of uh, called those guys, oh, yeah, good job, keep it up, what you got
0: next. And, and, and was that like your psychologically, what what was going on? Like, you know, Talk to me about just kind of what you've learned now as to what was happening in your head around, you know, why you're committing to it, tripling down at this point, like what what was going on psychologically and how far were you, was that taking you away from like the truth? Yeah. um,
1: So each time I did it, I got desensitized to doing it. So the first time, you know, she calls me, I don't place any trades. Yes, I told the guy, but I knew enough. I'm going to sit on this and wait and this is not right. Once I did it and it actually happened and I got the adrenaline rush, um, I hate to say it, it just became easier to compartmentalize that. So Mm. we would make at least a 1,000 trades a year in the portfolio. So I looked at it like, all right, if we're making 996 legitimate trades and four are illicit, like that's fine because I I minimized it. So Mm. I just kept telling myself... These were immaterial stock trades because they were so small relative to everybody else. So I was able to compartmentalize this, minimize it. And as I think about it and look back today, when I talk about in my seminars, is this idea of isolated decision making? Like, didn't talk to my boss, didn't talk to anybody in compliance, of course, didn't talk to anybody at my firm, made that decision to cross that line in my industry, which every industry has that line you can cross. And so, had I been had I had a mentor, I think, they in my 20s, like outside the industry, you won't believe what's going on, talking to my mentor, this billionaire is doing it. This woman just called me. I'm thinking about taking a flyer. The right mentor, if you were my mentor, you could have known enough to slap me around. Like, why would you ever do this? You're you're 28 now, you're you have a potential to make millions of dollars if you just do the right thing. Why would you mm-hmm. ever, ever take this risk? Because kind of the reward is this, but then the risk, like below the the, the ocean is, is so deep, like just framing it that way. So I think not having a mentor, that's one of the things I wish I could, could spell now, you know, from my 40s back to the 20-something Toms today, like find a mentor. Um, you're going to have these crossroads in your career that you're going to want to talk to somebody outside your company, maybe outside your industry about what you're seeing. Didn't yeah. have that. And again, going back to it, I mentioned it before, just those personal insecurities I had. I didn't have the self-awareness in my 20s to even know I'd be susceptible to something like this. I didn't have... Just that 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 awareness of myself. I was just so insecure about what these other guys at these conferences were doing. And once I was part of that group, um, it it felt good. I hate to say it, but it felt good to be like somebody looked up to as like
0: another guy who's in the know about this stuff. Right. And and then like as you're talking about absent mentor, did you kind of have like a have one in this group, like this aspiring? Like you didn't have the right mentor, but you had right. like these guys you're looking up to, right? Like when you said young that's Padawan, like you're yeah. looking up to these yeah. guys, but you're yeah. you don't know it. You're looking up at Sith lords, <laughs> you
1: know? <in> the- <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, that's a great analogy. And so you're right. If you have a mentor, uh, have a good mentor. Right? Don't don't pick right. the bad mentor. So I definitely had one or two. Exactly right. These guys were five to seven years older than me, so exactly where I saw I wanted to be. Uh, they were saying, "Keep it up." Uh, my boss again was about 15 years older than me. Looking the other way, he was kind of a mentor, but not again the right mentor. Not asking me about my success. Um, we managed. Uh, we we traded tech stocks. One of the one of the uh, trades I did was Hilton Hotels, like that was acquired by a private equity firm. So I'm trading tech stocks, and I buy Hilton Hotels, and it goes up 30 mm-hmm. percent. And the boss says nothing. Like, all right, so this is fine. You know, I I tell myself this is okay to do because nobody's saying anything. <laughs> So how long did this go on and what what brought it to a halt? Yeah, that's the pivotal point. So this happened between March of 2007 and September of 2007 was the fourth and final trade. On these trades in question, my take as the junior partner was uh, $46,000, which in the context of how I was doing that year in my potential career is, is a very small amount. And I was um, approached Eight months after the fourth trade, July of 2008, I was leaving my apartment in Manhattan to drop off some dry cleaning to get a cab to the office. I stepped on the sidewalk and this guy behind me said, are you Tom? And I turned around and it was the two agents, dark suits, like the FBI wallets were out. If anybody's watched any crime show, you've seen this scene. FBI come sit down with us. We sat down at a fast food restaurant in Manhattan at 6.30 in the morning And the agent said, look, we know about those four trades you did. We know that you were just down in Atlanta visiting your baby nephew for his baptism two days ago. And so they had been following me for a while. But my first thought, Dale, with the FBI in my face was, oh, my God, my dad's going to kill me. You know, (laughs) what's he going to say? I'm still in my 20s. We're still very close. All he could talk about was my success. And then I thought, oh, my God, my wife's going to find out. I had only been married for two years. She didn't know about these four trades. I never just never talked about it. And then I thought, oh my God, this might impact my career. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> oh my God, I might be going to prison. Yeah. But I went from dad to prison. I start making implicating statements. I don't even know what the FBI has on me because they're writing it all down. They're like, go on, go on, confess, confess. It's very, it's very rare. Right. Usually, when the FBI approaches you, what you're supposed to do, my advice, like anybody ever approached by the FBI, um, is just take their card, talk to an attorney because. A lot of this stuff is fishing expeditions. Let's go scare the crap out of this kid dropping off his dry cleaning at 630 in the morning. And so I just started spilling my guts. And I think the FBI was shocked. They're like, oh, you're admitting to it? Oh, oh thank you. <laughs> like, it was right. pretty – Like I knew what I did. Like I wasn't going to try to cover it up. When they confronted me with what I did, I knew I was caught. I'm not going to try to cover it up. I'm not going to go to trial and try to change the, change the past. Like I looked at it as, all right, I'm going to confess my sins. And then the FBI said, Tom – do you know this going on in the industry? I said, of course it's going on. It's rampant. And they said, Tom, you have the opportunity to help us build some of these bigger cases. It's going to help you out, Tom, if you work with us. And I said, should I talk to an attorney? They said, we'll let you know when you can do that. So they're not supposed to say that. But I also (laughs) should have known. I can probably talk to an attorney now and stop talking. But again, it's 6.30 in the morning, scared out of your mind, the FBI, worst day of my life. Like It's the middle of the financial crisis too. So it's 2008. So I went to work a few hours after that. I was late. My boss was like, You know, where were you? Like, ah, I just had something come up this morning. My face was white, but it was, again, the financial crisis. So my face was white every day. So it was sort of like I didn't have any red flags. And so I called the FBI back a few days later and told them I had not talked to an attorney, truthfully. Um, but I said, What does it even mean to help you? I don't understand. How do I help you? Like, I know what's going on, but what do you mean? And he said, thank you so much for your call, Tom. And he said, what you're gonna have to do for your country is wear
0: what's called a body wire. Hey guys, Dale here. And I wanted to take a quick break to invite you to join the launch of the Lions Guy community called The Pride. You see, whether it was at work dealing with the demands of the day or maintaining the demands of my life at home, I always seemed to feel like my struggles were unique. Like somehow I was the only one struggling to find joy amidst all the weight that I felt I was carrying each day. And You know, what I've come to realize is that we all have our struggles that we're up against and it's pretty demanding. The only way to rise to those demands is to decide and make the change to adopt a growth mindset, to be what I call a high performer. And that's why I started Lion's Guide. I want to help you break through to the next level of you and your ability to not only meet but exceed those demands on you and in doing so find your joy again. If you're a growth-minded individual, ready to make a change, then I'm here for you. And this is how you get started. I invite you to visit lionsguide.com and sign up to join the Pride. The Pride is the Lions Guide community for growth-minded members like you. Once signed up, you'll get special access to all the free content and resources I'm putting out there. You'll also be invited to join my live online events where I host sessions on personal growth and high performance. You'll also be able to engage with other growth-minded members on our private online group. Also, if you're enjoying the podcast as a member, you'll get access not only to all the podcasts, but also the podcasts that have been yet to be released. So get access to all this and more. So break out of that rut, break into your next level and join me on lionsguide.com and let's grow together. Go to lionsguide.com and become a member of the pride today. Now back to the show. During those three days, what was life like for you? Like where, where were you at
1: in your head? Very low, so that was a Tuesday morning. Um, the FBI approached several people in the summer of 2008, like this in the industry, two people committed suicide that day. So you might think your life is over. Um, I knew my career is over, but I had some pretty dark nights. Actually a few hours after the FBI approached me, um, I was in midtown Manhattan at my office. I'm I'm Catholic. I actually went through RCIA with my, when I married my wife two years before. Um, and so I figured it was a good time for a confession. (laughs) So I went to St. Patrick's Cathedral, um, Went into the confession booth, told my life story, told what just happened. The priest was probably upset he got me because it took a long time, <laughs> and so I think he was kind of shocked. But he also said, "Tom, it sounds like if you're telling me the truth at this point, Tom, 99 percent of your life you did the right thing. Now, one percent of your life, you really screwed up. But Tom, you can't let that one percent of your life like define what you think you're, you're thinking about doing to yourself, what you what you think your future's going to look like. But Tom, you have the opportunity right now." You know, to turn your life around, it sounds like, uh, start making good choices now. So the way that that priest, whoever it was, framed it for me, I don't even want to think about it, but may have saved my life just thinking, okay, I can't let that define me at this point. And I was only allowed to tell my wife, the FBI told me, don't tell anybody about this except your spouse. But how am I going to do that? I've only been married two years and I waited till Friday after work. So I waited those three days, having bed sweats, panic attacks finally told my wife. She knew something was up because I like to keep it light usually. And she said, all right, Friday after work, you know, young couple, in New York City, glass of wine before we go out to dinner. How was your week? I said, well, let me go first. And, and she she was working at Lehman Brothers. So she had all the stories up to this point during the financial crisis. And I sat her down and said, I have to tell you something happened this week. And she got very serious. And I told her FBI insider trading. And Dale, she, she said, you know, say that again. It wasn't what she was expecting. I think she was thinking maybe infidelity or something, but I said it again. And what she said is, oh, you didn't do anything to hurt me. Now, 85% of marriages end right there. If a spouse gets a felony, it's over. I mean, she didn't marry Tipper X, the convicted felon. She married the hedge fund guy, but she knew me well enough. We were able to work through it, but that's very rare. I, I, I rarely beat anybody in my situation today who was able to stay you know with their spouse through this it almost always ends the marriage which understandably right i mean for her she's 26 years old she's not her her life has just changed her future's just changed i mean because she's married to me it would be very easy to to hoist the sails there we didn't have any children and, and leave but she stayed around so for me Dale, that was like very important that she stayed with me and I was able to get through this yeah and
0: you guys are still married today
1: we are yes exactly um 16 years so um wow been through a lot, but uh, she stayed with me. But again, our future changed all because of what I did. So I did this to us. I was going to have to get us out of this. And so I told her what the FBI told me. She said, look, if they're giving you a chance to help clean up the industry, it's time to start doing the right thing. So I called the FBI. He said, you're going to have to wear a body wire. And so what I did for over two years undercover was wear a body wire and the wire at that time, I'm sure the technology is different now, but it was about an inch or two big and it fit my front shirt pocket. So the FBI, I I would bring the FBI a list of people who I felt were the worst actors in the industry. The problem was though, I didn't know these people that well. Some of these guys I knew through those conferences, like the Padawan stuff, but like a lot of them, the FBI wanted, I had to build relationships. So it might be a 47 year old, You know, centillionaire. And here I am as a 29 year old uh, lowly financial analyst, but I played up to their ego. Hey, I knew about my four trades. How do you do it? And I'd have to get these people in cover stories. Like I'd say, hey, Dale, what would you say that trade you did two years ago? Like, what would you say if you were ever asked as to why you did that insider trade? And if you create a cover story and I could record that, it would be enough for the FBI to see that you had intent to break the law. And then they could approach you, knock on the door, you know approach people that way so i worked undercover for two years wearing this body wire it was pretty scary i don't want to glamorize it for people thinking it's like it's it kind, of, kind of sounds like the movies but it's pretty scary because i feel that the wire in my mind is like 10 times bigger than it is i feel like the target must know i'm wearing a body wire um and so the fbi would coach me about how do you get people to talk when i ask questions i have to pause and that pause can be a minute because somebody could be looking at me like I don't know this guy, Tom, that well. He's asking me about this illicit trade. What is he getting at? So sometimes there's this awkward pause. I would fill the silence. The FBI would listen to it back later and say, Tom, you're doing a terrible job. You're supposed to let them, however long it takes the person to talk, let them talk. And of course, I said, guys, it's my first time ever doing this, all right? So it sort of like cut me some slack. And then I got pretty good at it. So over years- these guys are coaching
0: you through- being a UC form. Wow.
1: Right. So they weren't listening to it uh, contemporaneously. They would listen to it afterwards on the old like radio, like they would go to Radio Shack, get tapes, get the recording devices and listen to it, coach me. And they said, Tom, ask the question. There might be 30 seconds of silence or a minute of silence. Let the person answer. So I got good at that. Um, so I was undercover for two years. One of the scariest moments was A person high up the FBI's list who I got in 15 conversations over the first year, he would say nothing. He'd always be like, all right, how's the weather? Sort of change the subject. One Sunday afternoon, he gave me a call. He lived in Greenwich, Connecticut, a suburb of Manhattan. I lived in Manhattan. He said, Tom, we need to have dinner tonight. We need to talk. I called the FBI. I said, this guy you want, wants to have dinner with me tonight. The FBI got excited. They met me at the train station in Manhattan. They gave me the wire. I took the train out to Greenwich. This guy picked me up at the train station and he said, Tom, good to see you. I brought swim trunks for you. We're going swimming at my mother's house. So I don't even know him that well. Um, the Sopranos is popular that summer. All these ideas are going through my head. I played it cool. I got into his car. I'm used to wearing the wire at this point. I played it cool, tried to keep my blood pressure down. Got to this house. He starts disrobing in this room. So he wants to see if something will like taped to my chest. So he's on to me. Um, the wire was in my front dress shirt pocket. Now I'm about to have a heart attack. I excused myself, went to the restroom, took the wire out, put in my jeans, put these swim trunks on. So it's the two of us walking out to this pool. It's so quiet. I saw like a shovel against the house, a hole in the ground. And I thought, you know, is this guy going to try to kill me or something? And we got in the swimming pool. He grabs a tennis ball. We're playing this awkward game of catch for a few minutes. He's pouring it on psychologically. After a few minutes, he said, Tom, you've been acting kind of weird for several months. I have to ask you a question. I spoke to an attorney, Tom. You have to answer truthfully. At this point, Dale, I was so scared. I'm not a good swimmer. thought, what's going to happen? I, I, was, I was basically prepared to confess what I'd been doing. But he said, Tom, have you been approached, Tom, by the SEC? So the SEC is the regulator. The FBI is law enforcement. So truthfully, I could say, no, not the SEC. He didn't catch that nuance. He starts making statements which were not recorded, which would implicate him. He was actually never charged by the FBI because that was never recorded. And up until a few years ago, he was actually still managing money for outside investors. He was never charged um, for what happened. So that was sort of the pulled out of the Hollywood type scene situation at that time. Um, where the FBI probably
0: didn't know that what they were getting me into with that one. So sure, yeah, that sounds <laughs> pretty intense. <laughs> yeah. um, is there any kind of man? You know, so I guess when you were undercover for these two years, was it business as usual as far as everyone else was concerned? Were you still reporting to the office? Still reporting to your boss? Did you kind of clam up in your your new little circle, like? How about the rest of what was going on around you? Yeah. So to break
1: it up, uh, the first year I was still at my firm. So it was sort of like having uh, two jobs, like one at my firm, one for the FBI, where literally at lunch break, I would go out you know, in the black town car, like right outside my office, talk to <laughs> the agents, kind of like have to hide my face a little bit to make sure other people in the building didn't see me in this town car. So they had like the shaded windows where I could talk to them. And then I go back to the office and go back to work. I was a terrible performer at work. Now it was the financial crisis. So it was like the worst stock market in 75 years. So that's some of it. But also this was going on. My boss knew something was up. He's like, man, like your picks are just awful. Like, what's going on? Again, I couldn't say anything. Um, and so that was going on for the first year. I left my firm early 2009, the start of my second year of cooperation. I just had, had it. And I told my boss, look, I had a terrible year. I'm just going to take some time off, which a lot of people were leaving finance around the financial crisis. Like, look, I'm going to do something else with my life. And so I continued to be a cooperator out of work, um, but still meeting people at Starbucks, that type of thing, getting people in conversations for the FBI. And then fast forward to October, 2009, I'm actually at the hospital with my wife because she's in, in labor with our first daughter. Uh, the FBI calls me. They're like, have you, have you turned on CNBC yet? And I turn it on. there's like 25 people in handcuffs all over Mm -hmm. wall street and they're like tom this is your work and the wall street journal had all these names come out and in the middle of all these little circles and these people who were sharing information it had all their names but it just said tipper x and i figured out oh my god they're calling me tipper x like i had no idea that was my fbi code name Mm. and All these names were out there, and CNBC is running a story. Now, who is this mystery Tipper X? So I'm in here like holding my wife's hand, and they're like, who is this mystery Tipper X? She needed no more stress, obviously, as any any couple knows. This is happening on CNBC. They didn't mention my name. They mentioned people who I'm sure were very upset to be mentioned with this. Um, At this point now, I'm about 30 and still working undercover as Tipper X. Um, So this was happening. All these arrests happened. Tipper X is out there in the industry. So everybody's talking now who is Tipper X? I was out of work at this point. Um, The FBI had told me at this point to talk to an attorney. This was like over a year into me working without an attorney. I called an attorney in Manhattan. I'm like, hey, I'm Tipper X. The FBI said I should talk to you. And of course, anybody that's an attorney listening will be like, well, why didn't you talk to an attorney? So I called this attorney. He's like, Tom, who was your attorney before me? And I said, you're the first I've ever spoken to. The FBI said, it's okay now. And he's like, Tom, you're supposed to call me the first day the FBI approached you. I said, you know what? Again, it's this theme. I'm like, it's my first time doing this. So <laughs> it's pretty, pretty straightforward for me. It's time to self-surrender December 2009 to the FBI. My cooperation was coming to an end. Uh, the FBI wanted me to get two friends in conversations who were really good friends about uh, the, the two friends I mentioned who I thought highly of that were outside of this circle um, I said, those are good friends. I'm never going to wear a wire on them. I'll go to prison if I have to do that. And the FBI said, okay, tomorrow your name's coming up. So I pleaded guilty December 2009. January 2010, Tipper X was revealed on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, January 2010. And it'll say Tipper X is Tom Harden. I didn't even think about Dale. Like Anybody that knew me in the industry had to raise their hand and say, oh my God, I know this guy. If... Anybody that met me at conferences or knew me since college that had no idea I would be doing this had to say they knew me. And I've only heard secondhand that the worst day of some people's careers was having that reputational damage of actually knowing me or even being a Facebook friend or a LinkedIn connection or having any type of text from me over the years, nothing illegitimate in those conversations, but just having that being even around me, I was a pariah. So Mm. the implications of my actions where I told myself originally, I'm not hurting anybody, Oh my god, like anybody that knew me, Tipper X, Tom Harden, forget it. So I lost like 40 LinkedIn connections, 50 Facebook friends, like everybody scattered, which understandably they had to at that time. So that's what happened when Tipper X was revealed.
0: Was it uh reminiscent when it came out on CNBC, like that pucker factor of when the FBI taps you on the shoulder at 6:30? Was it uh, to you was it another one of those moments like bam, like that you know, surprise, like that just happened type of thing. Like, I feel like what were you feeling then, I guess, is, is what I'm after.
1: Yeah, um, a lot of guilt because I could only tell my wife and it happened and it's a, it's only a 24-hour news story. So, you get through it, It's but they loop it like all the time. Tipper X on the, on the CNBC, if people know, there's like the scrolling ticker with the stocks in the news. Yeah. Like, it's scrolling every like five minutes. It was like Tipper X, it's Tom Harden my phone ringing off the hook at this point. So I left my firm. I was a stay at home dad with the, with the infant daughter. Like the press is stopping by my house. They want to quote. I'm like holding her. She's crying. My wife comes home from work. She's crying, holding the baby, looking at me. Like it's pretty awful. Uh, that day. Finally though, it's like a 24 hour news story. The next day it was like nothing happened. As far as the news, they were on to something else. Um, but it happened that day, again, to your point, like the FBI approached the day when Tipper X was revealed. Like, I know I'm Tipper X, but nobody else in the world knows other than my wife. Yeah. Thank, thank God my parents didn't see it because they're not following this. I want to tell them, but I, I want to tell them face to face the challenges. They're in Georgia, I'm in New Jersey. I'm flying them up to visit my first daughter, their first granddaughter. I'm going to tell them on oh, what's supposed to be a happy visit. Um, I told them that's very tough because again, all they could talk about was my success. You know, Tom's at a hedge fund, this and that, like, and to have to tell them this happened, this is going to be my future, which is totally unknown. I still might've been going to prison because I wasn't sentenced yet, which we can get to, but, um, had to tell them just like letting people down when they had this expectation of, of myself about, I'm going to be this
0: big success story. It's tough. It's tough. Yeah, I can imagine the. Um, so, I guess with regard to that, what you, you you talked about a little bit of the fallout, but you know, so take us back to some of those characters that the the lady that was giving you the info, the group that you were passed it on to, uh, your your boss who was willfully blind to it. What was the fallout in in those circles? Sure.
1: So um, other than my boss, all of those other people were arrested and charged. Um, The woman who was giving the information, she was the key cooperator on the hedge fund billionaire who went to prison for seven years. And so um, she was charged. She didn't go to prison. But there was like 80 people charged. Um, I helped them with 20. I got credit for 20 of the 80 people. Uh, My boss actually was never charged again. Um, the firm was charged for the money that it made on the four trades. It had to pay that back to the SEC, um, but he was never charged personally. Um, and so the firm paid that back. But most people, um, they arrested. But funny, Dale, like the, the three people who I felt were the worst actors in the industry were actually never charged by the FBI. And I don't know if they're mm-hmm. still working today. I don't know if they've learned their lesson, how close they were. But as these names became public and there was 80 names, I would look for these three names and these people were never charged. So I'm not sure. The FBI has to present the evidence to the prosecutor, and it's the prosecutor's call whether to bring the case. So I'm not sure where that broke down, but the three worst people at the time I felt were actually never charged. But yeah. the fallout of the guy saying Padawan, he's in handcuffs, he went to prison for three or four years, like, it's real. It's real. I mean, you're, you're, your liberties are taken from you.
0: Sure. Um, with regard to – repercussions, right? So, so you take us through a Soprano like scene where you've got, uh, a perfectly human fear of what could happen now. Here you are right now. You're out like yeah. it's known you're, you're got hands in 20 people getting arrested, charged with felonies, or I would assume, are, are do you live with a fear of repercussions for this or was that a point or stage? Um, The FBI.
1: This is what they always told me that they would assess the threat level of every target. So Mm -hmm. they were. They said they were trying to watch out for me, but also, they said, "Don't talk to an attorney yet." So you know, you have to. They're just going to be doing what they're going to do because I'm just a notch on their belt, right? I'm just sort of like, okay, let's get this guy. He's a number in terms of how many people get arrested and charged. So, but they said that they were assessing the threat level of every target, and it's a weird relationship with them because it's sort of a business relationship, like. They know me. They have me, but they also can't let me go off the deep end because they need me as an asset to, to build these cases. And so they would assess that threat level. But I didn't really live like the fear of like this is the mafia where hey you don't snitch, you don't rat. Hey, if they're giving me the chance to catch to clean up the industry, I'm going to help them. And so I didn't really live in that fear. Um, several years later, um, there was a weird incident where I got a, like a threatening email and a phone call, which I think was not from one of these individuals, but designed to scare me or something but that didn't really lead to much of anything. I told the FBI about it and it wasn't anything so I did have that fear but it was more like the fear of just shame not not any physical harm but just like again seeing all those connections on LinkedIn, Facebook, all those friends never responding uh, to my emails. Um, but you actually kind of figure out in these situations who your true friends are so I had four friends from college who were not in my industry who I hadn't spoken to since college said hey, if you need to ever talk to anybody i saw the news like my my door's always open you know the phone's always wow. there for you so those people now are much closer friends so it sort of sorts itself out too in these situations who are your true friends and who isn't
0: yeah yeah and i think you know am i wrong here to think like the irony of the the game right like you're playing a game and you know what's over the line and it's illegal whatever the insider trading but the FBI is also playing a game, and they're like not telling the whole truth, like as far as like the lawyer thing and all that stuff. I'm just kind of like acknowledging the irony of kind of what you were doing in your industry and kind of maybe what they were doing in theirs in their their respective game. Is that? Yeah, it's it's a
1: game. Um, yeah. yeah, I was I was crossing the line, and I looked at it as a game. And the same to your point, the same thing too, because sometimes uh, the FBI would go on a fishing expedition, so they'd say. We think this guy may have done this, but we're not sure. But if we go scare the crap out of this guy at 6 30 in the morning and get him to spill his guts, like he may just incriminate himself for us. So he's right. a person of interest. Let's go see. Like my fact pattern, we talked about this. This is happening next week, this day, this price, this company, like that's illegal. But sometimes I could have been buying a stock. Another company is buying the stock with inside information. I'm just buying it at the same time. The FBI sees who was trading at the same time. And they're like, you know what, let's just go on a fishing expedition and like scare five people one morning and just see what people say. So, there's also that part sure. of it too where it's all a game uh, there. Yeah. yeah.
0: And that was the end. I want to kind of circle back to round out the part where they just stopped. And then the, I would say the trouble, the prosecution portion started for you was when you – wouldn't go after your two close friends. Was that the point they said, okay, well, then we're done. It was we're done. Yeah.
1: yeah. Tipper X is done to us. Uh, your name's coming out tomorrow. Wow. So I only had, so I, I, I remember telling my brother the night before it was happening because he was in the industry too. Yeah. And that was a terrible day for him because he had to tell his boss like, all right, the name Harden is going to be everywhere tomorrow. And by the way, Tom never told me about any of this stuff and he had no idea. And so, but for him terrible day for him and like just letting him down sure. and you know anybody with the younger brother like all he could do was look up to me he's two years younger you know um just just the, the disappointment um as this started i underestimated that like because i was just so in it for two years like i'm tipper x this alter ego but then letting people know actually this is what happened this is what you're going to read in the newspaper this is what happened like yeah so um that happened And then I wasn't sentenced until 2015. So it took like six years, over six years to be sentenced. So it would just drag on for years and years. My attorney would call and say, hey, we think you're going to be sentenced in six months. And the judge would just push it out another six months. So I'm just kind of lingering, can't work. Tip Rex is everywhere for for six years until I was finally sentenced um, in 2015. So that was kind of a long time period just to be kind of doing nothing and, and waiting.
0: And and what were you doing during that time? What how were you maintaining? What was life like yeah. for you? Like,
1: I um I was pretty down. I think I was depressed. I, I never ta- I never saw a doctor um, about this. So, I would just talk to my wife, um, you know, about everything that was going on. Talk to my priest at my church in New Jersey. Uh, I guess just trying to get all the free help um, I could get. But I was really messed up and. Uh, I put in a lot of weight, so um, I was a soccer player growing up, um, put in a bunch of weight, was over well over 200 pounds at 5'10", and I'm a stay-at-home dad. And then one day, I was walking up the stairs with my daughter, carrying her up to bed for a nap, and I thought I was having a heart attack, but it turns out it was like a pulmonary embolism on the stairs. Went to the doctor. He just said man the blood work and all that you know typical guy hadn't had a physical in like 10 years like oh, i i'm i'm still skinny right <laughs> so he's like man at this point i'm 32 he's like well you're well over 200 pounds and the bmi you're off you know you're obese you're obese in the bmi here um and in a few years if you don't get yourself together you're looking at major problems you know as you get to 40. so he's like you got to start taking care of yourself and so for me that was like all right i can't control if I'm ever going to get a job again, because I'd apply for jobs all the time. There's always the question, have you been convicted of a felony? I would always answer it truthfully. I mean, they're going to find out. So I said, yes. But I always tell people, if you have to fill out the entire section about Tipper X insider trading, they're just going to skip that applicant. So <laughs> there was no applying for jobs. Uh, what I could control was, again, my, my, my physical self. So uh, my wife actually signed me up for a 5K. I mean, She's saving my life in so many situations in my life, and so she's like, "Tom, I'm going to push this jogging stroller. I'm going to beat you in this 5K in a few in a few months unless you start getting it together." So, she did beat me in the jogging stroller, but you know, once anybody that is that heavy starts working out, you know, the first 10, 15 pounds just just drop. You walk, run, walk, run. So it started with that 5K, and that was the first feeling of accomplishment like I've ever felt. In a mm-hmm. long time, just like I just felt good about myself doing something, and that first 5K, a little bit, lit a little bit of a fire. So, 10Ks, the half marathons, to marathons, to qualifying for Boston, to a couple of sub three hour marathons, to uh, ultra marathon, one 100 mile race. So, yeah. I think for running, I think what I did though, and I know you talked to a lot of endurance athletes, but I think I, I, I overdid it with my training, where I would run twice a day, every day, like in the morning before she had to go to work and then at, at night when she got home, when we had to have like really serious conversations about what the heck's going on with my job search, what am I going to do? We can't survive on one income. Like what's happening? I didn't want to have those conversations with her. I just wanted to run. So there's all these positives to me losing a bunch of weight and me as everybody, you know, you're a runner, just sort of you get in your zone and sort of that, that solo running kind of therapy, work things out in your head. But I wasn't being a good husband because i wasn't dealing with what we need to deal with i would just go run so i think i overdid it on the training the 100 plus mile weeks um but there was benefits to it but i also i think overdid it there um where i wouldn't address in my life what i needed to
0: you're attending to you're given all your cup to one bucket of health and wellness but not fill in your other buckets of relationship spouse and all that
1: yeah that's right
0: and and it
1: sort of my running career i guess culminated in this hundred mile race and it's if anybody knows that the loop ultra so it wasn't a point to point it was around a one mile loop um in northern new jersey so oh, <laughs> you can imagine so again i'm not right in the right in the headspace uh, at this at this point so it's a one mile loop and all the veterans of these races always tell you you know walk, run, walk, run strategy to do 100 miles. It's how you ever, it's the only way you're going to finish it. You know, people have those strategies of run eight minutes, walk two minutes just to save your quads because it's a long time you're out there. The problem is on the loop, the one mile loop, your car is right there every mile. And so the good thing is you have your nutrition, you know, right there. Like I knew what my stomach would take. I knew, um, you know, the kind of fueling I would need and I could take that. So it's not like you have to do drop packets and figure out where you dropped your your nutrition. It's like right there. So that's great. But it's also monotonous. And after a while, your side starts hurting because they didn't change direction. So after a while, my abductor, you know, 60 miles, 70 miles really starts to hurt. And by like 78 miles, I remember, Dale, it was like about three, the three marathon mark. I was mm-hmm. mentally done. And anybody that runs ultras, you know, once it's very hard to come back from that if it's your first time doing that. So that feeling of like, I'm done with this, like. I, I things are happening in my legs. The spasms, the body spasms are starting. I'm like, I can just go out and now tell social media that I ran three marathons. Um, I can say I ran 78 miles and get a bunch of likes, but also I didn't finish the damn race. And so I said, okay, I'm going to take a nap because I was running pretty good time. I was running the whole thing. I ran three marathons, didn't walk, but that was probably to my detriment. I should have took walking breaks. So my my car is there. I popped the trunk. I have like the... um the inflatable mattress back there. But like once I'm laying down, if I'm not setting an alarm, it's basically it. And so I go to lay down and there's actually a note there from my wife. Mm. Um, And she said, we didn't sleep on you. You can't sleep on us. Uh, So I turned around to hell with these body spasms. They were done. And I did the walk, run, shuffle uh, the last 22 miles to finish the race. And that to me, wow. She's just, she's incredible.
0: Wow, you're lucky man, man. That's it's yeah, to have yeah. a have a partner that truly supports your potential like that, man. Like, it's That's, it's good, good for you, man.
1: That's, yeah, and I I was not going to come home with
0: anything less than triple digits in mileage. <laughs> yeah, man, man. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, thanks for sharing that. The uh, so in the end, like, what um, if you could go back and kind of give that past version of you, you know whether it was you before this happened, while it was happening, and maybe like after you did it, like what what did, what did you learn? What what What's the insights of, you know, the advice you would give yourself or someone that's kind of done wrong, considering wrong. And it doesn't have to be insider trading.
1: Yeah, no, it could be anything. Um, I think it's important to recognize that it's a cautionary tale, but that we all have the capacity To do something wrong. I think sometimes people want to read about me and say, I would never do that, but, uh, or I've had a certain amount of ethics training and I'm okay. But once you get into the real world, like if you've had 20 hours of ethics, you know, college or whatever, once you work your first 80 hour week, like you assimilate to the culture and you could think you're a great person and would never do something. But once you assimilate to the culture, you're very um, influenced by who you surround yourself with in that culture. So, the subcultures out there so there's this sort of saying that's overused but i think it's important like you're the average of the five people you surround yourself with um yeah. i think that's important early in our careers to build a proper relationships. so clearly the one woman calling me was the wrong one but i had some other people that i didn't talk to enough that would have been the right people to have in my circle so think about those people you surround yourself with i would also say a couple things it's really important To think about the long-term like where do you want to be in your career 10 to 15 years from now in your 20s and then work backwards so hopefully you'll stay on that path and not not get off that path not succumb to to short-termism um going back to me having these insecurities like just focus on self-improvement like had i just focused on myself improving as an investor as a stock trader and not been so focused on what other people were doing Dale, I think I was just just drowning in insecurities at that point. Like these other guys are doing it—the Padawan guy, the the Sith the Sith Lord guy. Like these guys are making millions doing this. Like I'm not a part of that group. I'm so insecure about it. Again, 44 year old Tom would slap 20 year old, you know, 20 something Tom around and say, "Man, just focus on yourself. Like this first part of your career, you're just learning. Just find a mentor, which goes to the sort of final point here. Find a mentor, maybe outside your industry." I'll talk to companies in my corporate talks, and companies sometimes say, in my my prep call with the client before my talk, hey, we have a mentor program, but it's really here's your boss and here's your subordinate. It's like, no, no. The mentor should be like parent adult child relationship where it's not just career advice, it's like life advice. Like, get coffee once a month and talk about career. Yeah, but life, like, find that mentor. So anybody that's older that's listening, like be a mentor, anybody younger listening, find that mentor and, but make sure it's that sort of like your, your third parent, if you're younger, not, not your second boss. So I think that's important and too much when it's sort of, um, formalized in the corporate structure, the mentorship programs, it's to too boss employee and not, not parent adult child. Yeah.
0: Yeah, no, that's, I mean, and what do you think, um, At this point, you know, you've, you've come through this, looking back on it all, like what, what was, I mean, here's something I know we've not, you've not got a chance. What did you gain versus when you did this versus what did you lose? Cause I think that's like a real big point in your whole thing.
1: Wow. So I lost my former career. I lost the trajectory of being, you know, a multimillionaire or whatever, lost that money part, but I gained a lot from this, and I think again, not to be too um, a, a regular term that's used a lot, like everything happens for a reason. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe the FBI stopped me after the fourth trade. What if this? What if it went on for five years? It was four trades a year. It was twenty trades, uh, probably making a lot more than forty-six thousand, and probably going to prison. Maybe the FBI is not giving me a chance, so they stopped me. They confronted me with my wrongdoing and gave me the chance to turn it around. So. That happened. I'm very lucky with that. Um, obviously, I gained a much bigger appreciation for relationships and for my wife staying with me and uh, being able to be a stay-at-home dad with two daughters. Like anybody, you know, with daughters, dads and daughters, that's a really important bond that I wouldn't have had had I been the hedge fund guy having the nannies raise the kids and not knowing my children and sending the private school like. Yeah, we would have been a lot wealthier, but also I wouldn't have that relationship. And I also learned that I think we're all going to go through crap in life. Hopefully, it's not the front page of the Wall Street Journal, and hopefully nobody's breaking the law. But as I do these talks, and I, I, I always had a fear of public speaking. Like This is a very personal talk, and I was a financial analytical guy who wants to talk about this. But the last five years of having the opportunity to sort of make lemonade out of my lemons, Uh, has really opened my eyes to other people that are maybe going through something in life that they can't get through. And I'll often get emails after these talks, hey, would you be willing to talk about something going on? Maybe they have have a strained relationship with a relative or something in their careers. And so I've learned that these things can either define us, like I could be defined by these four trades the rest of my life. Like my gravestone, hopefully a long time from now, could just have these four stock tickers and here lies Tipper X. These moments can destroy us, like two people, the FBI approach committed suicide. Mm. Or you can develop, uh, try to learn from it and develop into something else. So I hope all in the end, I had this short kind of 10-year, less than 10-year career actually as the stock trader, but hopefully I had decades to share some part of the story and, and, and make a difference and make people just aware of like, yeah, what could happen, but also that um, there's opportunity to develop into something else and you don't have to be defined by like the worst thing you ever did. So that's what I've learned. Um, it's taken many years to get here, but that's that's where I am.
0: Yeah, no, and I think that's powerful and I honor you. And I think for... <sighs> I mean, your vulnerability in this, your ownership of it, your, your courage. Um, and, and I think just, it's worth saying, man, it's, it's a great example of that. And, and I think we got introduced by uh, Craig uh, Stanley, right? Like, yeah. I, th- mm-hmm. I think like, likewise, I think it's you guys message just saying like, look, you're perfectly human. You made a mistake, but like, like the, like the advice you got in confession, right? Like you do have control and a choice to say, now you could start making the right choices. Like you recognize you made the wrong choices, but guess what? You you have all the power to start making the right choices and 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 dealing with the consequences correctly. And and I and, and I mean, I just want to really honor you for that, man. I think like that one for doing it and 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 you know proceeding as you did, right? You like you, yeah. <laughs> yes, said, hey, you're right. I was wrong, and you pivoted. You know, so it's. it's Powerful.
1: Yeah, I can't – somebody like myself and like Craig, you know, we we can't change the past. So, oh, I wish I didn't make those four trades. Of course, I wish I didn't do that. You know, I wish I I had gone the other way. But also, I can't change it. But I can – starting right now, you know, I can control the decisions we're going to make now today and tomorrow. And I can just focus on that. And so, yeah, to your point exactly, um, we can either – learn from that or choose not to, but I think just developing into something else, um, different and reflecting on that and sharing those lessons and those insights, um, hopefully will be a benefit to people, you know, in all these speaking engagements If there's somebody in the room that gets, uh, the equivalent of their phone call from that woman and remembers this, um, in their yes. way. That's not, if I, if I heard this when I was 24, 25, it's probably not my story. So that's kind of the idea too, with my speaking and my training and all that stuff. Yeah, no, I I think it's a great lesson. So what are you working on now? So um, as a public speaker for a couple years, um, a global pandemic isn't the best uh, thing for a professional speaker. So March of 2020, I had a really thriving speaking career. It all all went to zero. I'm in a text group with other uh, speakers, and everybody's complaining about, oh, my God, pandemic has crushed us. It's never coming back, blaming COVID. And it's like many people that were affected by COVID you know, it's either either COVID happened to you or you can do something about it, right? So you can pivot. And so, uh, excuse me, Dell, what I'm working on now is uh, courses. So what I'll do is I'll have my keynote talk, uh, the inside story of Tipper X. Um, and sometimes after that, I'll work with associations to develop ethics courses for their members about what do we do at that moment? What kind of decision-making framework can we use in our careers, when we're at that sort of line, we could go this way or that way, where there might be a lot more gray to it than my situation. My mind was pretty black and white. I shouldn't have done that, but it's usually much more nuanced and gray. Mm -hmm. What kind of framework can we use to make those decisions? So I've been developing courses the last two years. And so anybody listening that if you're part of an association or corporation or whatever, but you want ethics training or that type of thing, I turn this story into lessons and takeaways for really any profession. It doesn't have to be finance. So that's that's what I'm working on today, courses
0: and and my speaking engagements too, my training engagements. Yeah, that's awesome. The um yeah, and I think your power your story's powerful. And I, I just want to reiterate for anyone that just kind of hasn't broken through, like your story relates to all kinds of wrongs. It's not a story about insider training. It's it's a story about wronging your own potential, right? It's, it's the, <laughs> you know, it's a plethora of examples, you know, infidelity, you know, whatever, like the, these are like choices and, um, and, and you, you know, you're wrong, you're not breaking, maybe you're not breaking a law in these choices, but you're, you're for the intent of what law is for, you're breaking, your potential. Yeah, you know, You're at fault to your potential. And I think your story applies to all of that. I mean, some of my favorite talks have been to high school students. So
1: I haven't done many, but I have friends that know what I'm doing are in my town and they're high school teachers. And they say, Tom, if there's any way to relate this to the, my, my, my kids in school, because what they're ha- what's happening is the teachers will catch the kids cheating on homework. And when the kids are caught cheating on homework, they'll say, but we don't cheat on the test. So going back to this <laughs> idea of rationalization, there it is. Yeah. Yeah. And so I tell the high schoolers when I was your age I cheated on homework not to test when I'm 28 29 I'm insider trading, and there's there's the line yeah and they're all when you see their faces at you know 17 years old they're like, oh my god I know exactly what you're talking about like how great is it that the 17 year old you know, yes it's my story that's unfortunate but also have the opportunity to, to sort of engage this way and, and relate it to them so to your point it can be really anywhere anytime um, and also th- I think it's important in my situation somebody in my situation to say, That they made bad decisions because sometimes, if I were to tell you I made mistakes, it's just it's some it's a it's a term where I see people say Mm -hmm. they made mistakes and they're not really. That's a way to kind of like say, oh, I didn't mean to. But when you make a bad decision, you own it. You're accountable for it, but you can also learn from it. So I think people that mess up or that type of thing just make sure you own it and say that's a bad decision. You know, it wasn't a mistake me pushing the buy button on this stock. That's a bad decision. So. Sometimes yeah. I'll see it, especially in corporate scandals where a CEO made a mistake and like, no, that was a bad decision. So leaders listening, just like when you when you talk to people, subordinates, like make sure people understand the difference between mistakes, which you learn from, and, and bad decisions,
0: um, which you also learn from, but like are more done with intent. So well, it goes back to like the control aspect of it. Like you control your yeah. decisions. Yes. Mistakes happen. Mistakes happen. Yeah, yeah. They may be outside right. of control, but Right. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you yeah. Know. You learn from them. Yeah. yeah. No, I love it. Yeah, so, yeah. so,
1: go ahead. No, I would say we, we celebrate the mistakes and then we learn from bad decisions. That's a better way to, to think yeah. about it or, or to, to sort of frame that for people.
0: Yeah. 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 No. Um, so, how can people reach out to you, get in touch with you? And uh, who, who should? Like, who are you really serving today and how are you serving them?
1: So, yeah, my website is uh, tipperx.com. So, that was my FBI code name. Uh, which I've now trademarked so <laughs> that's that's what I have now uh, Tppx. com um, speaking training really most of my um, calendar is corporations multinationals that want to bring in a speaker either you know a storyteller it might be um, a series uh, of a speaking series that that companies bring people in for but it's also along the lines of ethics and decision making so anytime you want, uh, somebody talking about, as we're talking about on this on this whole episode, just decision-making, ethics, how things can go wrong in a very human way. Um, that's what I do. So all my information is on the website um, and also with associations, anybody with CPAs or any type of associations that need ethics credits, I've been able to find a real niche um, telling the story and making it relatable to any industry. Sometimes ethics training, as we all know, people listening, I'm sure know that it can be very dry. It can be professors talking about deontology and utilitarianism, everything the Greeks taught us, but hey, that doesn't really apply in the real world. So it's much more psychological, as we discussed, than than, uh, philosophy. And so I think universities also have to come a long way too, where they're still teaching it philosophy-based, and it needs to be much more psychologically based. Everybody does it these guys are doing it. What do I do in the moment? And so that's what I do in my training session. So all my information is on the website at uh, zipperx.com.
0: Awesome, man. Well, yeah, I, I, again, I honor you for coming on, sharing your story and, and, and especially your courage, man. I think it's, it's taken a, you, you've put a lot of courage on display and, and doing the right thing, sharing your story and, and turning, you know, lemon and making lemonade out of it to go help others. And, you know, cause you're right. I think hearing a story like yours, um, Will help others not make the same mistakes just by hearing it. You know, they could relate to it. So, uh, thanks. Thank you for that and coming on today. I really appreciate it.
1: Thanks for having me on, Dell. It was a pleasure.
0: All right, sir. Talk to you soon.